Hi there. My name is Drew Jureka, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So, Drew, tell me how music came into your life. Well, actually, it's been part of my life for the entire thing. Uh, my sisters both played musical instruments, and so I grew up hearing them practicing two older sisters. My parents, neither of whom ever had any formal musical training, I think both at different times in their childhood had wished that they could learn an instrument. And so one of the things that they agreed upon when they had kids is that the they'd like to offer their children an opportunity to learn an instrument. And so each of us got an opportunity to take lessons. So I I presume this started early, and you probably started with classical That's right, music. yeah. I, I, I grew up listening to my sister. My eldest sister played the cello, and um, my middle sister plays the violin. And so I heard her playing violin, and I was asking for a violin when I was three. And so when I was three and a half, my parents got me a violin and started taking me to private lessons following the Suzuki method, roughly. I think the Suzuki method is one of those things that... Uh, is great for young kids. It gets you listening by ear. And then most teachers sort of diverge from it at some point. So I think my teacher followed it for the first few books and then just kind of branched out as we went. I, I always wonder when somebody starts at the age of three, um, and oftentimes it's they start because of their parents as opposed to them asking for it, but obviously you wanted to do this because you saw his sister's doing this. But at what point did you really connect to music, or was it immediate? I mean, because I was three, I it's hard for me to remember that, but I can definitely say that it's, to me, it feels like one of those things that has existed in my life forever. I mean, it's it's almost like a basic fact of life, because, because I think I was doing it before, right. you know, you really form linear memory in the way that you do when you're an older kid like you're three and a half I mean most people and myself included only have little snips of you know pictures and sounds and smells and things and uh and so violin has been such a big part yeah yeah of my life for as long as I can remember that uh I yeah somehow it just feels basic but was there a point where it was a struggle or I mean did you like practicing did was that just part of the I mean anecdotally I think I was a bit of a pain to teach <laughs> right off the bat uh, there was there are stories about me hiding under the piano in the teaching studio and refusing to come out and uh, I definitely now that uh, now that I have children and uh, my wife and I are uh, teaching them to play instruments uh, I'm I'm remembering that my parents my mother mostly uh would have some strategies for how to <laughs> help me stay on track and all those things but no I don't think it's I don't think it's ever felt like a real struggle I it's been at worst maybe a time management issue or like a priority that had to be maintained but I've always I think it's always been the central fact of my life really that I that I was that I played music and that I was following that path and so everything else has kind of folded in around that and I know you play other instruments when did you look at 
the possibility of other instruments? When did that happen in your life? So when I was, uh, how old are you when you go into fourth grade? Whenever I was going into fourth grade, I was, uh, uh, I went to this wonderful school called the Claude Watson School for the Arts, which is still there, though my understanding is that right now the TDSB is kind of gutting those those specialized arts programs. But uh, at the at the time, it was a really amazing program. The audition process was two weeks long. It was like a summer camp where you go and you do all these different activities. So I went there, and uh, because I came in with uh, a real strength on the violin, their policy was that you cannot play the instrument, your primary instrument, at, at the school as a as a focus. If you if you're already really strong when you come in, oh, I think they were. I mean, I think it's brilliant, but I think they probably recognized that a, a kid in an orchestra class who's already way better than all the kids who are starting, just you know, picking up the instrument for the first time is going to be maybe a bit of a disciplinary problem because because if they get bored <laughs> right, and uh and so i mean i'm not sure if there was any any other wisdom to it but from my perspective i feel incredibly grateful so the 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 school's policy was that if you were already a string player when you came in then you would start a woodwind instrument so i started uh on the clarinet and uh had some private lessons because my parents were believers in encouraging these things so I took some private clarinet lessons and uh, I think again I sort of I have a bit of a, a knack for this so I I excelled and then became bored and then became a pain in the butt and so they moved me to the flute and then they moved me to the saxophone and then the saxophone was sort of where I stayed for uh, so at, when I went to to high school I also went to an art school and I was sort of saxophone was my focus at that school. And so violin was something I was doing privately and saxophone was something I was doing in a band program at school. I would imagine those two instruments are quite different in the way you approach them and the way you play them. Am I correct to assume that? I mean, physically, they're completely different. Um, in terms of the, the, the part of an arrangement that they occupy... I would say they're quite similar, actually. They're both kind of melodic lead instruments. Right. And so to some degree, I, I mean, even now, I use them interchangeably. I'll go to a gig and I'll say to the band leader, is there anything else that you'd like me to bring other than the violin? <laughs> and they'll say, <laughs> okay, yeah, why don't you bring your clarinet or why don't you bring your saxophone? And then unless they have a specific idea sometimes they'll say oh on this next tune why don't you play you know sax or something for the most part i can just use them interchangeably so i don't know i mean it, they they're definitely different from a yeah from a physical standpoint but but i i think i've always been drawn to that type of instrument a kind of a lead melodic instrument so woodwind instruments stringed instruments i play the accordion and the bandonian which is a tango variant of the accordion but again still kind of occupies the same space wow i find that fascinating i've never seen you play the sax um really i played it with jeff but i may maybe just not when you were there yeah um is there is there any difference between the two instruments for you are you better at one or the other or are you basically the same 
I think I'm better. I mean, I'm definitely better at the violin than all of the other ones. The violin's been the thing that I put all of my time into um, and have just, I mean, there's something about starting an instrument, I think, when you are three and a half, mm-hmm. which is that as you grow, I think your body grows according to the physical needs that you provide it with you know like if you're playing if you're if you're holding your body in a particular way and you're moving your body in a particular way I mean you build muscle and you build strength and so I feel like the violin and I think it's also just long comfort the violin feels incredibly comfortable to me I feel like I can hold it in a relaxed way and not really think about a lot of the sort of basic technical aspects of the instrument whereas clarinet I'm always thinking about my embouchure and how I'm holding my lips and with the saxophone the same thing and I think with all those other instruments there's a there's another step conceptually between me and pure expression potentially whereas on the violin I think I really only have to focus on technical things when I'm trying to do something that's very technically demanding that you know that would be outside of my normal comfort zone so if we go back to grade four in that audition process, how much pressure was that for you? Or was it pressure at all? I don't remember it being pressure. Uh, I think my parents didn't push it as a... I mean, I think I'm not even sure that I was aware that it was an audition <laughs> process. I think they just presented it as a summer camp. Right. Um, and I mean, really, it's, it's, it's a TDSB program that's that was offered for free as I mean as, as just in lieu of a non-arts middle school and so I think there wasn't uh, I don't think they felt like a lot of pressure that I had to do it so I know I don't remember it being I don't remember it being really full of pressure it was fun I'm, I mean I don't think they do that anymore but it's amazing to think that at some point they had the resources to dedicate two weeks just to narrowing down applicants <laughs> that's true uh, it's, I mean, it, it seems insane right <laughs> it's crazy at what point did you decide, and I don't know if it was soon after that or way after that, that you would pursue music as a career? Again, I'm not sure I ever made a conscious decision about that. I think if you had asked me at any point in my life what I was going to do, I think I would have said music, probably. Right. So I mean, I honestly don't. I, I can't think of a. I can't think of a point where there was some click, or some realization. I think, honestly, the closest that. I came to uh, to that kind of decision would have been deciding when I was going to go to university, I applied for U of T as a saxophone player uh, and got in. Right. And I applied to the Cleveland Institute of Music um, as a violinist and got in. And uh, I mean, CIM, I think is a, a much more well-known school and uh, uh, carries a lot more weight in terms of just resume <laughs> resume power. And, uh, and so that, it seemed like an obvious choice, but I definitely was considering really going in two to completely different ways with, uh, with music at that point. So that was a bit of a, an interesting choice that I had to make. <laughs> and I do remember really thinking about it uh, hard. I mean, deciding whether or not I wanted to pursue one or the other. Um, and then the other point, I guess, would be I went to a classical school that was a really heavy classical school, 
um, which was great, armed me with a lot of technical knowledge and, and helped me practice my skills and get better at the violin. Um, but I never really intended maybe past the first or second year there to pursue classical music as a career direction in music. And so that was a that was an interesting point in my life where I was sort of, you know, immersed in the world of classical music and pre preparation for orchestral auditions and learning all this heavy classical repertoire. And really what I was doing was, you know, when I would come home uh, on summer break, I'd go and sit in with Laura Hubert at Grossman's and uh, go and, you know, go and go to jam sessions and go and play. <laughs> play with my old high school friends in garage bands and like, you know, do, do all this other stuff that ultimately I think in my mind was, was more the path I wanted to follow. So, okay. You decide to go to Cleveland Institute of Music and, and think you're, you're basically pursuing violin and classical music. And then, sure. then you decide, no, this isn't it. Like, I, yeah, maybe sometime I in the first, sometimes in the first year, I think I realized that playing in an orchestra wasn't going to be a satisfactory life. I don't think, I don't think I, I don't think I could imagine myself having that job all the time. I love the repertoire, but just the repetition of it. Right. Um, and, and the, the way that, that you work in the, the workplace environment and all that stuff didn't appeal. And I think also when you go to a, a really good school with lots of really great players, your dreams of being Itzhak Perlman, your dreams of being a, a soloist start to come into a bit more perspective because you start to realize, oh, you know, I've, I thought that I was really amazing, but actually there's a lot of people who are really, really amazing at this. <laughs> and so you start to realize like, you know, the, the one person per generation or two people per generation who become famous soloists are, are, are one of many really, really amazing players. And so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of, there's a lot to that, basically. I mean, it's tough being a solo player, right? Like, it's insane. I think it's tough. I mean, I know some people who 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 do that, and I think it's fun and it's exciting, and you get to you get to do a lot of great things. And of course, you have your own agency musically in a way that you don't in an orchestra. Right. But I think you're on the road all the time. I think you're you are a solo artist you have to be working on your own career and and focusing on that so it's definitely a it's definitely a path and and yes getting there is incredibly tough i mean just getting the opportunities that lead to that career and maintaining your technique and uh and you know being in that kind of shape is amazing i mean the people that do it are uh, amazing to me mm -hmm. But when you realize that maybe that's the orchestral path isn't the way you want to go, then what happens? Like how how difficult is that realization for you? Uh, I don't think it was that difficult, except that I was in an environment where that was the obvious path that everyone was following. Right. And so I had thankfully a really wonderful private teacher, who, uh, well, I mean, I actually went so far as to go and and take auditions uh at berkeley and uh i have to ask my parents i think we at least visited new york i'm not sure where i auditioned or if i did but but um i mean cons i considered going different places got into berkeley but my private teacher at uh, cleveland basically said 
I think you should stay here. I think you should become as good as you can at the violin. And I think that the stuff that I'm teaching you is basically just a technical framework for approaching the instrument that can be applied to anything you want. So there's no reason for you to 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 do that. And I, I, I bought his logic at the time. And actually, I think he was right. I think that I got a much better violinistic education through the classical mode than I probably would have um, in a you know, in a jazz school. I mean, I'm sure I would have gotten other information that would, yeah. it would have been wonderful, but. Um, and, and then is it, was the, always the choice between classical or jazz? Cause I know you play a lot of other things too, but at that point, was it just one or the other? At that point, I think I didn't have the imagination to, uh, to envision something else. So that to me though, to me, that was a binary choice. So what I don't, I just, you know, recently interviewed Roberto Acapinti and oh, yeah. talking about jazz and classical music and just in, in, in coming across a lot of musicians um, in the classical field, they often cite jazz as a second choice. Um, I don't know if it's your second choice, but there's a, there's a close relationship between the two in, in many cases that I've interviewed people. What is that connection or is there that connection with you and what is that connection it's fine i've talked to roberto about this a lot too actually because he and i in some ways find that we're similar and that we were classically trained and right and actually at this point we have worked in the classical field as well as the jazz field um i don't know i mean i think it's probably just it's probably just the 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 narrowness of the education system and the kind of classicism of the classicization of uh, of styles of music, and so for me, I mean, I was studying with teachers, and I was in school, and I wasn't, I was listening to violin repertoire, you know, like I wasn't, lis- I wasn't like listening to a bunch of pop music. I always never, I kind of never liked <laughs> the popular music that I heard of the day. Right. I mean, that's because I grew up in the '90s and it sucked. But either way. <laughs> Because now I, there's all kinds of great pop music, <laughs> but uh, um, I, yeah, to some I think it's just that those were the two things that were being taught, and so jazz has been kind of classicized. You know, it's been cre- it's been it's been engulfed by the education system, and it's taught at the university level, and you can get a doctorate in it. And so, you know, I I just my parents are both educated professionals, and I think that that was just kind of the path you follow you you pick a subject and then you you know you major in it and you study it and then you go and see if see what you can do with that information and of course i now know that music in particular is totally not linear in that way the, the arts generally don't they don't really work that way most of the time it's not like you get out of school and then you start applying for jobs right. you kind of you know you find you find them but yeah i think at the time it was like well do I like this classical music that I'm playing or do I like this jazz music that I'm playing in band class? And I'll even say that for me, because I played saxophone, it never even occurred to me that I might play jazz on the violin until my second year of university. I had so strongly diverged those two things. So I had like, I played classical music on the violin and I played jazz on the saxophone. And so for me, when I was thinking about those two choices before I went to university, it was literally more, am I going to do saxophone or violin? I wasn't even thinking in terms of jazz or classical, I don't think. Okay, so if I, at a very simplistic 
level, if I look at the difference between the two, I think of classical music, and it's probably not fair to be that simple about it, but I, I think of classical music players as very disciplined. They can read off charts and execute amazingly. Whereas jazz, to me, is a lot about, I mean, I know they read charts, but it's a lot about improvisation. Was there that division in your mind of the two, or did you look at the two musics differently? No, I think that's the that pretty much sums up how I view the difference at the time. I think now I think of jazz as being a gateway drug into everything else, because I think that it's true, classical music, especially on an instrument like the violin, which is just a very technically demanding instrument, classical music is narrow in the sense that it forces you to focus mostly, especially at a young age, on how you are achieving the thing that you want to achieve technically. And I think that jazz is freeing because you can be a worse player of your instrument, but be an amazing improviser. And so you can, you can have that, that freedom of expression open to you in a way that doesn't it doesn't care about your technique. I mean, obviously your technique is is important. So everyone needs to be great at their instrument. But I think from a child's perspective, I think that I, I saw jazz as being this really free thing that allowed me all of this expression. And I saw classical music as being this place where I went to really work on my skills, you know, like it was, it was hard work. Right. So, before the second year, when you made that distinction, or when you came to the realization that the violin could be used to play jazz, did, did your violin playing basically consist of reading music versus improvising? And at the same time, did your sax playing basically consist of improvisation versus reading classical music? Yeah, that's fair to say. And I had essentially stopped playing the saxophone when I went to school because it's right. it was busy. So I... um. Uh, but but yeah, I mean uh, that was that's exactly right. I I had I had a very intense, studious, amazingly organized of mind teacher when I was in high school by the name of Loran Fenyevich, and he always used to say when he would ask me what else I was doing, and I would tell him I was playing the saxophone, I was playing jazz on the saxophone. He would say, "Drew, you are wasting your talent." <laughs> <laughs> so, which, which I again, I don't think is true. I, and even at the time, I don't think I really bought it. But, but that I mean, I think things have changed now. But you know, even even then, in the late '90s and early 2000s, when I was going to entering university, I think that the school that I went to viewed jazz and saxophone and those forms of music as like a waste of time a little bit. Or, or just as you know, it was it wasn't really a suitable hobby. So I think when I went, when I got there, it was like, yeah, I got you got to really focus. So jazz became the thing that I would do for fun, you know, to get get some relief and 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 play around a bit. <laughs> so how easy was it for you to pick up the violin and start improvising on it? Was it simple, or was it like I'll just apply my saxophone knowledge? to my violin or was it was it a process well yeah we're i mean just trying to think of how to answer that (laughs) when i started improvising on the violin i think i applied my classical approach 
that kind of that pedagogical approach to it. So when I started playing, I like listened a bunch to Stefan Grappelli and Joe Venuti and other players right. and figured out what bowings they were doing to play swing. And then I worked really hard on just getting that ingrained. And then I figured out some of the scales and then I would practice those scales. And so, I mean, in a way that I kind of never did on the saxophone, which is sort of ridiculous, like saxophone, I just listened to a bunch of Charlie Parker records and then just tried to sound like Charlie Parker <laughs> until I got bored with that and decided that I wanted to try and sound like something else, it's, you know, sound like myself or be right. more creative. But where, yeah, on the violin, I, I did kind of practice it. And I had a teacher when I was really working at it. I mean, this teacher at um, David Updegraff at, at the Cleveland Institute of Music was, was encouraging. And so I would bring in things that I was thinking about and he would kind of apply his mind to it and try and help me figure out how to do things. He was, he was it was good. He, I mean, he was still teaching me Bach and, and violin concertos and, and etudes, but he was willing to entertain uh, my my questions about this about this other stuff too so yeah I, I mean I think I still approached it in kind of a geeky technical way and then ultimately I mean the fact that I was able to come back to Toronto and play with musicians here and go and listen to great players I mean I think at some point you just sort of those walls relax themselves and especially when you're doing it you're on stage and you're you're trying to improvise and you're trying to to, you know work your way through an idea i think you kind of have to at some point relax relax those boundaries and start to just listen to your brain and try and get there by any means right but you know you're going to university thinking you might be going for classical music and joining an orchestra and then coming to realization that maybe the orchestra is the thing you want to do and maybe it's jazz like do you have a sense of what that means in, in terms of a career path to be a jazz musician playing I mean my parents thought that they knew what that meant they thought they were like wait what do you mean you, like <laughs> you get, you're gonna you play in an orchestra you can get a job I mean you know the Cleveland Institute of Music at that time one of the stats that it released promotionally was the ratio of graduates or the number of graduates that got jobs in major orchestras right. and how many years it took them to get those, those great jobs. So, you know, that was, it, it, I think it was, it still somehow sold itself as like a career program uh, in a way that no jazz program can make those kinds of claims right. because there aren't <laughs> jobs there. They, I mean, that's just how it goes. You don't, I've never really been employed. Right. That's not how, that's not how it works. So from my parents' perspective, they were like, maybe you should be taking orchestral auditions and, you know, trying to follow that path that seems safe and seems like there's an income at the end of it, instead of doing this totally crazy freeform thing that seems, you know, destined to end right. you in poverty, I think. And, and I don't know, at the time I just kind of didn't care. I think I was like in, in college and I, I thankfully didn't know enough about the world and didn't have enough sense of responsibility to take that seriously, which I think is one of the great gifts of being young, right? You can True. make decisions that older people would think were completely stupid and foolish and you can make them with total confidence. And then sometimes that works out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so now you have this mindset that you're going to follow jazz in whatever format that it would be. I don't know if you had something specific or not. Um, no, no. But I, I read somewhere, and sometimes it's dangerous reading something on the internet because oftentimes it's not true, but I read somewhere that you were, you were also at one point a strolling musician at an Italian restaurant. Is that true? That's true. So, so that that was one of my outlets for improvisation when I was at school. Actually, my two major outlets were a, a really a, a great bass player and and a friend of mine who was in my year, a guy named Nicholas Gaudet, who we just played outside. We basically would just sit outside of the dorm, and uh, like in a tree or in the field next to the dorm, and uh, and play music. And, and improvise it. So we would write songs or we would listen to things or we would whatever. We were just... So when you say just, write songs, what kind of songs are we talking about? Jazz? Oh, I don't know. Like, I mean, make stuff up. I don't really mean... We, we <laughs> okay. I don't think we ever wrote a song, but we would sit there for like four or five hours on a Sunday and just have our instruments there and be hanging out. And so we, you know, play, play things together. Um, and so that was one of the outlets. Uh, and then... The, the other outlet became this gig at a, at an Italian restaurant, which was with um, the girl I was dating at the time, who's now my wife. So we we met um, outside of the dorm. I was jamming with Nick, and she walked by and said, "Hey, what are you doing?" And so I said, "Oh, we're, you know, we're just making stuff up." And she's like, "Oh, that's cool." So we started we started dating and uh, got this opportunity to do this strolling gig. So we would do strolling violin duo stuff at a restaurant called Guarino's in Little Italy in uh in cleveland and we went table to table and rebecca has a great memory for melodies and she grew up listening to musical theater all the old like oscar hammerstein musicals and and uh and all that stuff that kind of mgm music musicals (laughs) and so she had this huge library of these melodies in her head and so people would ask for stuff and she'd be able to play it and uh and i had i was I would just improvise accompaniments. So I, it was a great boot camp for me because I had to often didn't know the song wow. or had only heard it like once. And so I would have to kind of try and figure out how to make it to fill it out, to orchestrate essentially, um, which was, it was so great. So we do it for like, I think it was a few hours, a couple of times a week. And I mean, there were definitely times when it totally sucked. Like I was not, <laughs> able to <laughs> I was not able to follow the the chords or figure out what the structure was and what I was playing didn't make any sense but I I kind of it 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 worked me out you know it kind of worked me through that process of thinking about chords and thinking about accompaniment thinking about counter melody and uh, and gave me a ton of time to practice it that's interesting now what would that experience other than the fact that it taught you that but the fact that you were entertaining people in a restaurant while they were eating what did that experience teach you uh humility mostly (laughs) i mean if you walk up to uh if you especially in a classical school i mean again if you think about who you idolize when you're a violin uh, you know promising violin student in high school you're thinking about uh gil shaham and itzhak perlman all these amazing famous violinists who play for crowds of silent adoring people in large halls and then you go to a restaurant and you have to walk up to a table and ask people what they want to hear and most of the time what they want to hear is you leaving (laughs) 
and so, or they or they'll say, I don't know, can you go play away from us? And then once in a while, somebody really likes what you do, and they'll give you like fifty bucks or something. Like we'd get these great tips, and so there was, you. I mean, it was a it was a realignment certainly of how I thought about myself, and it was a a, a real exercise in 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 humility, and uh, I mean. I, I'm I'm being a little dramatic, but but I think it's safe to say that being a strolling musician in a restaurant is begging. Interesting, right? It's panhandling yeah. of a type. You know, it's like hopefully you you return something that people think is of value, and and it certainly was clear when people didn't think what we were providing was of value. Right. That was not often not subtle. <laughs> Uh, but but the nice thing is that when people did think what we had given them was a value we were rewarded with money and praise and sometimes people would buy us dinner i mean it was you know you you have some people some people really love music and love musicians and are incredibly supportive so it was a it was a it was an interesting experience and probably people skills just talking to people and getting used to everything from rejection to compliments which are both hard to take in their own way yeah I can imagine. Like I, I have seen you in a club setting. I have seen you in a festival setting, and uh, small, uh, like a, a soft sleep theater. I mean, they're all different, but strolling oh, musician yeah. is a, it's quite different. Though it's not that much different than playing at the Rex. I don't think. I mean, oh okay. <laughs> if you like, to my from my perspective, I've I've been doing this weekly Friday gig at the Rex for about fifteen years. I mean, it's on hold right now, but. Right. I expect it'll probably resume. And uh, I love that gig. It's super fun. I love the band. We get to play whatever we want. We have a pretty loyal group of people. I mean, we can we can pretty much put a, a satisfactory crowd in there every week of mostly the same people. Um, but, but those people come to talk over us for two hours to some degree. I mean, again... Uh, I don't mean to make them sound terrible. But I think that that's what we're providing, right? These are people that like the music. They know us. They 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 put money in the jug. You know, they pay the cover. They buy drinks. They listen to the music. They clap for solos. But they also talk during the songs because they're hanging out with their friends. And I think there's something really awesome about that, actually, as a as a venue for music. I I I kind of like playing in a noisy club. To some degree, I think it's, I think it's fun that music is part of a social environment, and I think it's fun that, you know, people don't feel like there's all this social pressure to like shut up and just listen. I think it's nice that they can drink a beer and and have a conversation, and then when something really grabs them, they can be quiet for a minute and listen. Right. But there's definitely a humility that you have to have in order to be able to make it through that experience, especially until you're used to it. And when does one get used to something like that? Well, I mean, I think, I think it, like anything, anything that happens over and over again, you at some point, you get used to it. Right. And if it sucks, you you try to stop doing it. And if you don't mind it, I mean, and obviously, I've had weeks at the Rex or at other clubs where people are literally just talking over us and ignoring us, and that feels just as bad as you think it would feel. Yeah. Um, but. I think there's a feel of a crowd that's having a good time and having conversations and sometimes laughing at their own jokes, but also, you know, when the song gets quiet, they get quiet. And when 
people play a great solo they cheer wildly like there's i think there's i think actually in some ways i think it's more fun because you sort of feed off the crowd's energy which is kind of ongoing and not totally reliant on you and so if they're rowdy but listening you can kind of you know try and play energetic stuff and make it more of a party and if they seem like a really listening quiet contemplative crowd you can you can play to that as well right. whereas in a theater i mean that's another type of magical experience we you really get to feel like you're holding people in your hand and you're you're you know you can drive their emotional experience from start to finish and you can connect with them in more detail and with more subtlety than you can in a noisy bar but i don't know i like both i i think I think probably the Italian restaurant gig helped me appreciate that all of those are, are potentially good musical experiences. <laughs> okay, so when I first saw you, it was with Jeff Healy's Jazz Wizards. And I think you mm -hmm. just told me that it was one of your first gigs. Can you? It really was my first gig, actually. How did that happen? So in my last year of school, um, I would let's see I would come back to Toronto of course my parent my family lives here and so I'd come back for the summer I'd come back for Christmas I'd come back for breaks whatever to visit and uh, my mother <laughs> had a had the same hairdresser as Laura Hubert who's this <laughs> wonderful uh, like veteran jazz vocalist she's I mean I think if you ask Toronto jazz singers who they admire she will be on so many of their lists because right. she's just this amazing uh singer and amazing um conveyor of emotion right she's just got she's got a lot of range and she's got she's got a lot of skill yeah and uh and so she had this weekly gig at grossman's tavern and she basically would let me come and sit in i'm, I'm not even sure i was necessarily the favorite face that she would see, but she, would, she, she, and I think as I got more comfortable, she, she warmed up and became happier to see me. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, and so I got a lot, I mean, really, I think I, I can thank Laura in large part for giving me a venue to kind of work out my jazz chops. Uh, and so at some point, Jeff, what's the chain here? I think I actually figured this out. Nick, a singer that had sung with Jeff named Nicole Stoffman saw me with Laura and asked me to play with her. And she was playing with occasionally with these guys who were playing uh, jazz manouche, like the Django Reinhardt style of jazz right. at the Transact Club with a group called the Grand Bouche Swing Tet. And so I went and started playing with them. And the bass player in that band is Colin Bray, who is the bass player in Jeff Healy's Jazz Wizards. Right. And so at some point, we just got a call. My my father got a call at his house from Jeff. He's saying, hey, um, this is Jeff Healy. Can I speak to Drew Jureka? And I think I wasn't there, but I called him back. And he said, hey, um, my bass player says you're really good. You want to come and sit in with me at, the, at my club this coming weekend? And so I went and sat in with him at, at, the, at Healy's once. And he said, great, you know, I'm making a record next week here's the address of the studio why don't you come to the studio and so the following week i i went and recorded adventures in jazz land with jeff and the band i think that may have been the second or third time i played with them wow and uh um and definitely my first real rec recording session um and then 
after that, I was going back to school, and Jeff said, "Well, you know, whenever you finish this classical nonsense, if you uh, <laughs> if you want to, you know, if you if you if you're coming back to Toronto and you want to give me a call, uh, you got a gig if you when you come back." So I didn't have any other offers, and uh, and Jeff was awesome, and the band was awesome, and playing with them was really fantastic. So that just became like I finished my last year of school, kind of thinking of this as my as my path. And so when I came back to Toronto, I called Jeff and said, Hey, I'm going to move back to Toronto. I think it was a summer. So it was like, I'll, I'll be here. And he said, great, come start, come start sitting in. And truthfully, I mean, Jeff, Jeff was amazing. He was incredibly welcoming. He would let me come and play every week. And I, I was being paid and he was started inviting me on the tours and I was being paid for those. And so it, it gave me enough money to start a career. I could, I could have an apartment and I could, you know, live, live like an adult on the money that I was making. And, uh, and, and it just, it anchored me. It allowed me to, to have a regular gig while I started getting everything else together. So I just was then in Toronto and making connections. And And what did you know about Jeff before that? Nothing. I had never heard of him. (laughs) Wow, I hadn't heard. I hadn't heard of. I hadn't heard of the blues because I wasn't really. I wasn't. I was never a consumer of popular music at all. So I missed the Jeff Healy thing. I think. I. I think the name had, like, it rang a little bit. You know, it was like a name that I had heard before, but I. I. I had no idea who he was, um, and so, and, and I mean, actually, even going and playing with Jeff, the the thing about Jeff, and you saw him in the jazz context, is that, he's a, he's a magnetic musician his 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 uh his abilities and his his power and the way his voice sounds and the way that he plays i mean he's just such an awesome player and i mean he's a virtuosic guitar player but uh, he was an amazing trumpet player in the style of louis armstrong and, and just a great singer and so i think i didn't really need to know any more than that at that point you know you sort of you you play with somebody like that and i was just blown away in that context and so i i mean i obviously people were like oh you're playing with jeff healy he's he's a famous blues musician and so then i <laughs> i looked up the blues stuff and i was like oh that's that's cool i was never that into it but uh but yeah i mean you know again his his jazz chops and and band leading skills and everything were more than enough for me and i i don't know if it's the nature of your instrument but when i saw you guys he featured you a lot yeah i think he was a I mean, he was a real supporter of mine also. He he was uh, I mean, he 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 did a lot for me. He was he was really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> he so he he made he went out of his way to feature me and I think he also introduced me to people and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's true it, in a in a context of a band like that when everyone's playing. I mean, you know, I was not necessarily audible when the whole band was was all playing. So the other thing is to really make use of a violinist. I think you have to be able to get everyone to be a little quieter while they take a solo here and there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I remember being captivated by your playing when I watched that, when I got the chance to see the, the jazz wizards. And, oh, thank and, you. You know, like, I mean, I presume that it's one hell of a band and everybody in that band were pretty amazing. Yeah, it was an amazing band. I... um. I mean, Jeff was amazing in so many ways, but uh, the the other two frontline players, Chris Plock, who's an amazing entertainer, mm-hmm. uh, 
was yeah I don't know I think both of those guys also like Ross Wildridge is just a fantastic clarinet player and a great improviser and I always wanted to play as well as him that was sort of my when I was in that band I would listen to him and go oh wow that's so awesome <laughs> and uh and Chris also I'm mean, a great player but not to take away from that but he but his handling of the audience was kind of amazing to me and I think I was really in awe of both of those skill sets you know that that the ability to to talk to people and connect with them and also the ability to just blow a solo that's that's really really killer and then Jeff kind of pulled it all together the um again not to minimize everyone else in the band it was a it was a terrific band that gelled really well together and kind of felt great to play with at all times and I guess as far as the jazz band I mean it came with just I presume because of Jeff's name and also the quality of the band but I mean, it came with a decent audience, which I can't imagine. Jeff consciously, Jeff consciously traded on his name to force popularity onto something that otherwise would have been much more niche. Right. I think that's that's something that he knew he was doing, and I think it's great. I mean, he really, we, he would talk about that. He would be like, you know, he could he could headline festivals and sell out much larger halls than uh than i think he would have been able to if he had just come up through the jazz world yeah so he definitely he consciously did that i mean that came with some disadvantages which was mostly people yelling requests for angel eyes and uh, (laughs) while my guitar gently weeps (laughs) and then jeff having to uh politely and then less politely and then eventually not politely at all throughout the course of a set occasionally put people down Right. Who were, who were too insistent about it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I think that was that was a real gift that Jeff gave, uh, all of us, in terms of our own experience and visibility, and also the music. I think he revived it by trading on his his fame. So when you said it was a great way to start because it allowed you to establish yourself in other ways, and in other ways, it still included. Um, classical music and you, you do a lot of production work and you, you do a lot of studio recordings H- how easy was it to establish that side of you you know if I'm honest I think that everything in my career including Jeff actually has been less about planning and more about readiness and uh and willingness to follow up on things right a- and um i i mean i got into recording because i had done a bunch of studio sessions and wasn't always happy with the way that the violin sounded it didn't sound the way that i imagined it sounding in my head or that i knew it could sound in a concert hall and so I started investing in microphones initially, literally so that I could bring them to studios and say, no, please use this. So I think I spent like 1500 bucks on a microphone <laughs> just so that I could bring it and then be the annoying guy who like brings his own microphone to the studio and insists that the engineer use it. Uh, and, uh, and then at some point I'd kind of, I was obviously interested in that stuff. And so I started investing slowly in, in recording gear and uh and more and more built my life around it so it was it kind of happened slowly but the it's one of those things where i think 
if you build it, they will actually come sometimes, which is that once I was able to record myself well at home, people started saying, oh, you can record yourself well at home. Well, maybe I don't need to pay for a studio to record you for an hour, so why don't you just do this for me at home? And then once I got that reputation, I think that it became easier to hire me for things. And uh, and then, I mean, you know, your network kind of, if you, I think if you do acceptable work and you don't piss anyone off, you can your network can kind of grow grow itself to some degree as long as the work exists right uh, but so i can't some, imagine I mean, that being an easy thing though i mean nothing's easy but i don't know i haven't spent a lot of time in my life doing things that i didn't enjoy doing that sounds really uh kind of hedonistic when I put it that way but I just mean like I I, I I haven't I really haven't spent a lot of time I don't think I would have invested money and time on microphones and preamplifiers and interfaces and then learning how to use them if I didn't enjoy that you know what I mean right, and yeah. so to some degree it's just I think it just it was an it was a natural offshoot of my inclination so it was it's a hobby that turned into a profession and it was a hobby that intersected enough with what I was doing that it made sense. Um, and then when it became clear that I could really make a living doing that, then it became really easy. So I, you know, I was recording myself and I was working with different producers. And so at some point, uh, a producer producing a record for a songwriter named Jill Barber, uh, asked me to play on the record and then asked me to write a little small string arrangement for something. And so then I did that, and then people started hiring me to write string arrangements because they had heard that record. And so now, you know, these things, I think they kind of just grew out of, I, I mean, I, I really can't claim to have driven in any particular direction other than just following the opportunities that I had and and applying my my effort and time to trying to do things well. Which which makes sense. And, I, I, I you know, when I ask people if they had a plan, most of them don't. And, and some of the people who've had the most amazing opportunities presented to them happened in such a weird way, but they were just ready at that moment. And it's kind of a neat thing to see, you know, but there, there's very few musicians who said, I had a five-year plan and this is where I was going to be five years from now. Because it just doesn't Well, I think, the, I mean, as a musician, the, the concept of a five-year plan is hilarious. <laughs> Right. It's completely, it's total nonsense. You know, you can't, what are you going to do? Because, the, I mean, yeah, it's so, it's so social and it's so reliant on everyone else. I mean, that's the other thing about it is, is you can't really create a career in music without other musicians in most cases. I know there are people that have just started creating music and building an audience, but right. But most of the people that, that really work in the sector, I think, work for other people mostly and then have their own projects on the side. I think if we were all solo artists, it, it, would, it would be a lot harder to, uh, to make ends meet in, in the music business. Um, so I know a couple of the people I interviewed from VC2, you had um, produced their album. How did oh, yeah. you get into production and becoming a producer? 
Um, kind of the same way. I really, I had, I had the equipment. I was recording and mixing strings. So I would write an arrangement and then I would either go to a studio or I would record myself several times or I would bring people into what slowly grew into my own home studio. Uh, and um, I think at some point if people like what they're hearing, they start to ask you to do that. And so I, um, I got an opportunity from Jill Barber, actually, who, who, uh, who, along with Jeff, I would say Jill is responsible for a lot of the really positive things that have happened in my musical career, right. um, because she, uh, she believed that I could do things and was willing to, to ha ask me to do them, which is, you know really helpful <laughs> and so I got opportunities just to to try things out um so she she asked me to produce a record of French jazz standards which was the first really serious record that I had ever produced and so that just forced me to think through the organization behind it and getting you know I I, I basically spent all the money I made doing that buying equipment and uh and and getting getting myself in line to be able to do it and so um I don't know where those guys heard my work. I know I, I played with Brian with the Art of Time Ensemble, right. and we talked a little bit about it, but uh, I think it's one of those things. I think I, I've just kind of, I've been doing enough enough work in Toronto, which is a relatively small scene. So at some point, I think I'm just one of the names that comes up when, when you talk about a certain type of work. So they kind of just called me and asked me to be involved, and we get along really well. They fit nicely in my little studio. Um, <laughs> two and cellos. So, sorry, yeah, exactly, two cellos. And I and I was really, I mean, I spent a long time with them working on sound the first time we, we did this. I mean, we spent maybe half of the first day when we recorded that album uh, just setting up mics and moving things around and... and listening and and you know i mean i i really put a lot of time into it and so i think we got somewhere where they were very happy with how the record sounds they got a lot of compliments on how it sounds and uh and yeah i mean i i like editing them and working with them they're really easy to work with they don't they don't have huge egos and they don't get easily upset and they were willing to take my musical comments uh and it was great it was a great relationship so in those in those kinds of situations i think it's uh it feels easy and it feels great. And I'm really happy. I mean, it's so proud of the product mm -hmm. uh, that we created. I think that, I mean, they're awesome players and their, their career rightfully seems to be going really well. Uh, that's for sure. So in, in terms of your own career, I know you, you, when we spoke at the beginning of the pandemic, you were doing a lot of studio work. I presume you're still doing some studio work. Yeah, that's all I'm doing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess there's no live work out there, but... Um, how do you picture yourself? Like, are you more now a studio person, or like, who knows what it's, this will result it's in? It's so but. hard to say. I mean, it at this point in terms of share of income, even before the pandemic, I would say the studio was the thing that was enabling me to live like a middle class person. Right. Um. And, and again, it's not so much studio work. Really, it's it's I, I mean, because it doesn't even necessarily all get recorded here. It's uh it's work that I do in my studio at home, which is arranging 
and some production work, but mostly arranging. These days I'm hired a lot as a string arranger. I've done some orchestration. I mean, last year, uh, or this year, I, Royal Wood did a concert of my arrangements with the Toronto Symphony, and I've had opportunities to write for most of the orchestras now in, in Canada for different types of things, and smaller groups like the Art of Time Ensemble, duos. So I'm getting hired as an arranger um, where I deliver sheet music, and I'm also getting hired as an arranger where I record I have a string quartet that I right. bring in to record arrangements that I write for people's records. And I also um, sometimes will do less standard things where I'll just have like myself play a bunch of violin layers and then I'll put like a bass clarinet on it or something, you know, I'll do kind of weird, weird arrangements with what I have on hand. Um, and so that's, that really keeps me quite busy. So, I mean, in terms of that, I think, I think I think of myself as being an arranger but I really love live performance, yeah. and um, and that thing. I mean, if you if you don't mind me sort of going off on a tangent here, but the the thing that is so exciting to be about my own path in live performance has been that it's changed like every year in a huge ways. I mean, when I I was playing with Jeff, and I was playing with him really regularly, and then. I started playing with this band from Calgary and going flying out there and then going all over the world with them. And then I was playing with Jill Barber. And then I had a few years where I was mostly playing with song, local jazz singers and people in Toronto. And now I'm playing Bandonian in a tango band. And I my the string quartet that I've been hiring to do recordings of arrangements with people now has started touring as a classical string quartet and playing some of my compositions and also backing up artists. So it's just been this constantly shifting thing where just, I mean, the amount of playing, the venues that I play in, the people that I'm playing with just keep changing wildly from from year to year. And I, I find that really exciting. And I just love, I mean, I love being in front of an audience and playing for an audience. It's It's still, I think, it's the thing that gives me the most immediate joy. So in a way, I mean, I don't want, I don't really want to have to choose right. between studio uh, teaching and performance, which are the three things that I spend most of my time doing and really like them all, I would say equally. But uh, I think performance right now feels like an important thing because I've had to give it up in the, in the light, in light of the pandemic. And so I'm very keenly aware of what that was in my life uh, and what's missing right now in a way that I think probably I mostly just take that for granted, you know, during when everything's going fine. So if if things go back to the way it was or go back to a place where you can start performing again, how difficult would it be for you to get back into playing shape or maybe that's not the right word, but like, would you be able to? Oh, I'm in shape. Yeah. No, that's not an issue for me okay. I, I, because I'm because I'm in my studio playing all the time. I mean, I'm sending tracks off to people for. I don't know. Just the other day, I sent off accordion and violin tracks for a film score, and today, when we get off the phone, I'm going to be working on a, a, a sort of smushy Hollywood-style arrangement for a Christmas song. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm really, I'm playing and I'm thinking about music, and so I feel like I'm in shape. the The thing that I worry about, um, if you allow me to hijack the question, is just what resuming will look like and what, I mean, you know, per, performing musicians 
essentially, even though we don't like to say that we work for exposure, we do trade on visibility. That is kind of our stock and trade. Right. And so if people don't know who you are, then you're at exactly zero. And then you have to convince people to come out and see you. And then you have to convince people to come and see you again. And then you have to convince more people to do it. And so in, so, you know, in the tango band, which is my own group with my wife and in the string quartet, which is my own group with my wife, uh, which actually is another whole positive development, which is that we get to, we now get to play together. So those projects, I mean, we've built those projects. Rebecca really built the tango band and the two of us have built the string quartet. And so those are a little bit, it's hard for me to imagine what starting from scratch is going to look like in, in both of those cases, because we do, we did have some momentum that has now been stopped. Right. But in terms of just my excitement about playing and feeling ready to go and play, that's not, that's not, I don't worry about that at all. I just, I just can't wait. <laughs> um, the one thing you had mentioned, and if I'm correct, in the beginning of March, or somewhere in March, did you not post a video of your your family performing, your kids singing? Yes, yeah, that's the that's been our our performing outlet uh, since the since COVID, which is that um, my wife and I have done some live stream concerts playing together, right. doing classical violin duos, and and actually our Italian restaurant shtick. <laughs> Uh, improvising improvising you know, th- uh, arrangements for things and so that's super fun and uh both of my daughters uh well two of my daughters i have three daughters but the the third is young enough that she can't stand up yet so she's certainly not playing any instruments but um but my two older daughters are both playing violin and piano and uh singing and so the 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 pandemic has given them a lot more time to practice and so they're they're like jumping forward in terms of their progress and uh and then people that saw that video old straw hat video that we made have been asking us to do live streams and you know online performances that include the kids and so we've had to really quickly figure out how to <laughs> include the kids in our performing which has been a whole nother it's it's mostly fun but it you know because they're kids they comes with some frustration and some real difficulties as well Wow, I mean that that was a brilliant video. It was amazing. Oh, so people should check it out because it's wonderful. Um, well, I will say we're actually we, my wife has written a song that we're working on for the next one. I'm I'm also currently recording all the arranging uh, arrangement pieces for that, and the we're, the kids are learning to uh, to sing it. So there's going to be another one coming in the as soon as we can get it done sometime <laughs> in the next month or so. Okay, oh, I'll be looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good project. <laughs> oh, and who knows? Everyone enjoys themselves, and it's like, you know, frustrations aside, uh, which happens with anything when you're trying to get kids to do stuff. Yes, the kids are really proud of the product, and we have a a really good time mostly working on it, and and they're, you know, they're into the process, and so it's really fun. And who knows what that will lead into, right? Yeah, as everything. I mean, yeah. I. It's so when I go back and try and trace the path of the opportunities that I've gotten, it's dizzying. It's just because it any connection could lead to anything in 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 this business. And now, I mean, the fact that the world has been shrunk by the internet already, and then the fact that the pandemic has has forced us to go online even more. I think that 
the potential for global opportunity to come out of of almost anything that you do is is really high. Yeah. I should wrap this up. I really want to thank you for taking this time. You're somebody I've always wanted to meet, and hopefully one day we will meet face-to-face. Um, yeah, well, I'll look forward to actually <laughs> seeing you in person when all this is over. But um, my final question to you, tell me what music has meant to you. Let me think about that. Just a simple answer. No, I'm kidding. Well, it's a hard one. Yeah. I think it's like asking somebody, at least in my case, I think it's it's a really fundamental part of my life. And so, I, I mean, I'm not a religious person. I'm not, uh, I, I haven't, I wasn't, I was brought up without any specific push towards any, you know, creed of that type. And so I think for me, the music has provided, aside from a career, it's provided an outlet for all of my creative energy. It's kind of shaped the way that I view the world. And it's, it's something that occupies all of my time. I mean, I'm not a well-rounded person in the sense that all of my hobbies are music. You know, when I, when I like get bored of, of the, the gigs that I'm playing on the violin, I tend to learn another instrument. <laughs> so it's like not, you know, it's not like I'm taking up woodworking or something. I really am like, I'm a little one-sided in that sense. So for me, I mean, it's really a fundamental part of my life. I, I always try to think of like what would happen if, you know, both of my arms were chopped off and then I couldn't play the violin. And I, I'm not actually sure what, what I would do in that situation, but it would probably still be composition or something like I don't I don't see uh, a way at least personally to exist without music as a really fundamental part of of my existence good answer true thank you so much for doing this it's a real pleasure my pleasure you. Yeah, thanks for having me really it's been enjoyable it. thanks